brilliant. Thanks. Um, do keep James chapter 1 open. As Gareth has already told us, we're starting a new series uh, now for the next uh, few weeks, working our way through the book of James. Um, I'm going to pray as we come to God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we have just sung and asked that you would speak, uh, and so we want to echo that prayer now. We ask that you would speak to us. Uh, help us to be people who listen, uh, and Father, by your Spirit and through your word, would you change us to be more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. We ask for his glory. Amen. Well, as Gareth has already said, it is the start of a new year, the start of a new decade, and I wonder whether you're the kind of person who likes to set New Year's resolutions, whether you've already got some in the bank in your mind, things that you want to do this year in 2020. I did a quick Google search this week to see what some of the most common New Year's resolutions are, all the things that you might expect, eat healthier um, read more books, uh, do more exercise. There were definitely more people out on their new bicycles uh, or at the 5K park run uh, this weekend. People love a good New Year's resolution. Uh, there were some others that I thought were, were fairly ambitious, though. Um, one was uh, to be the best person that you know. Uh, resolve to be the best person you know uh, or resolve to just stop worrying. 2020, Stop worrying. Don't worry about anything this year. It'll be fine. Or make a friend a week. That was quite a good one. Resolve to make a friend a week. I don't know what you think about all these different New Year's resolutions that you can come up with. But if you're anything like me, then you quite like the idea, but you tend to fail on the execution. For me, I like the idea of New Year's news resolutions, but I'm often caught in two minds about them. I like the idea of running a marathon, uh, but I also like the idea of an extra hour in bed in the morning. I like the idea of reading more books, but I also like the idea uh, of a good Netflix series uh, when I'm tired in the evening. Uh, the problem for me is that I, I don't stay focused. I get caught in two minds. And so by February, usually my New Year's resolutions have failed. And I think sometimes the same can be true in the Christian life. On the one hand, we think, yes, it's the start of a new year and I want to be a more wholehearted Christian. I want to be more obedient, more loving, more Christ-like. And so we resolve to, as we've just heard, to, to read our Bible every day, every morning, uh, we resolve to, to pray for at least 10 minutes each day. We resolve to give more money to gospel work and spend more time with people in need. We resolve to do all those things. Uh, but then at the same time, we find that we also quite like what the world has to offer. Our non-Christian friends seem to be having quite a lot of fun. Uh, they seem to have life together, life sorted. Uh, and so before we know it, we're kind of caught in two minds uh, about living for Jesus. Uh, we're listening to the voices of the world and we're trying to listen to God's voice. And, and the result is we get caught in two minds. We are double-minded. Uh, and double-mindedness is actually what the letter of James is all about. 
in, in verse 1, as we just had it read, we see that this is a letter written by James, probably uh, the brother of Jesus. And unlike some other New Testament letters, he's not writing to a particular church in a particular place, but to Christians scattered around the Middle East. The reason he writes is because these scattered Christians are in danger. Uh, They're in danger of the thing I've just been describing. In danger of listening to the world more than listening to God. They're in danger of becoming double-minded. And this double-mindedness, it's much more serious than breaking your New Year diet. Uh, Later on in chapter 4, when we get there, uh, James will put it bluntly when he says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Uh, James says double-mindedness is serious, it's dangerous, because it leads to enmity with God. Uh, And so he writes this letter to warn his readers, to warn us, in the hope that they will stop listening to the voices of the world and instead remain focused on the truth, focused on the gospel, focused on the Lord Jesus. That's his aim, that's his desire for his readers. And he begins in chapter 1 with this issue of trials. You see, James knows that when we go through hard times, when we experience difficulty, That is the times when we are most tempted to maybe go somewhere else for ideas. When we face relationship difficulties or problems at work or financial pressures, those are the times we can think maybe the world has something better to offer than God's word. James knows that trials can cause us to wander from the truth. And so he begins his letter by showing us how to remain focused in the midst of trials. And in verse 2, he says something that might surprise us. How to remain focused in trials. Verse 2, look there with me. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Joy is something overwhelmingly positive, isn't it? We've just had Christmas, the season of joy, and joy then, I guess we associate with things like presents or family fun or good food. Christmas is a season of joy. But here James says, consider it joy not just when you're having a lovely time at Christmas, not just when everything is going well, but consider it joy when you face life's difficulties. When you face trials of many kinds. Consider it joy when you experience illness or bereavement. Consider it joy when you feel lonely or disappointed. And you might hear that or hear that on first reading and think, James, that's just ridiculous. How can I possibly be happy about those sort of things? What are you talking about? But notice that James isn't saying feel happy all of the time. No, he says consider it joy. In other words, this is much more about our thinking than our feeling. Joy is about thinking in the right way. 
It means viewing trials through the lens of God's word, not through the lies of the world. You see, when it comes to the world's thinking, life is all about pleasure and comfort. Those in the end are the most important things. Those are the things we should strive for. And so discomfort, hardship, trials can never be a good thing in the world's eyes. They are to be avoided at all costs. But here James says, don't be double-minded. Don't think like the world. He says, if you're a Christian, you can consider it joy because in God's sovereignty, pain has a purpose. Look at verse 2 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, James isn't talking about having joy in the trial itself. That'd be weird. No, he says you can have joy because of what God is doing through the trial. You can have joy because of what is being achieved by the trial. Uh, We can see how that works in other areas of life, can't we? I remember it was a while ago now, but just before the London 2012 Olympics, uh, there was a documentary about the British rowing team and their preparation uh, for the event. Uh, And as I watched it, the, the physical training those guys went through was absolutely horrific. It looked awful. They, they would push themselves to the very limit. There was one bit, I remember it, where one of the rowers rowed so hard, he fell off the rowing machine, fainted, and one of his mates kind of shook him, splashed a cup of water in his face, woke him up, and he jumped back on the machine and carried on rowing. The training was awful. And as they interviewed each of the guys, each one of them said they hated absolutely every single second of what they spent their whole lives doing. So why? Why did they do it? What enabled them to persevere through all the pain? Well, each one of them said the same thing. It was the Olympic gold medal. They understood that whilst pain is not an enjoyable thing, it was part of the process of making them into gold medal athletes. Their pain had a purpose. And the same is true when it comes to trials. The trials that we face in life are often, if not always, painful. We mustn't deny that with a cheesy grin on our face, saying, no, don't worry, it's not as bad as it looks. No, trials are hard. Trials hurt. They are painful. But that does not mean they are pointless. James says that God works in them to bring about maturity and completeness. And if we think about it, those are the things that we long for, aren't they? If we're Christians, then, like I said at the start, we long to be more wholehearted, long to be more mature, more Christ-like. That's what we want, if you asked us. And James is saying that the way God gets us there is through trials. It's as we persevere through trial, as we focus not on the trial itself, but on the God who is at work through it, that we draw closer to him. 
that we learn to depend on him, that our love for him grows as we trust him and we keep going right to the very end. Just look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, our, our crown is not an Olympic gold medal. It's not something that will rust or get broken or lost. Now, our reward, our crown, is the crown of life. A reward that will last forever. And that is something that James says we can rejoice in, even when we face trial. How to focus in the midst of trial. First, count it all joy. Second, ask for wisdom. A common experience as we go through difficulty is this kind of feeling of confusion, isn't it? When we experience a, a painful situation, we can feel disorientated, not, not sure where to go or, or what to do or, or who to talk to. And again, James knows this. And so he says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You see, when life is going well, when, when things feel under control, that is when we often forget our need of God, isn't it? The comfortable coasting Christian is so often the prayerless Christian. That's certainly my experience. But then when trials come, that changes in an instant, doesn't it? Suddenly we are woken up to our need. Suddenly we feel our helplessness, our lack of wisdom. And James says in those times, as you, as you feel those things, your response should be to go to God, to ask him for help, to ask him for wisdom. And wonderfully, he says that when we do that, God is overwhelmingly generous. He gives us the wisdom that we need. But what is wisdom? What is the wisdom that we're to ask for? What is it for? What does it enable us to do? The answer, I think, comes later on in James's letter. You don't need to turn there. We'll get there in a few weeks' time. Because in, in chapter 3, James talks about two types of wisdom. Uh, he says there is worldly wisdom, wisdom from below, and that wisdom is all to do with bitter envy and selfish ambition. It's all about me. And the result of that worldly wisdom is chaos and disorder. That's worldly wisdom. But then there's another kind of wisdom he talks about, which is wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is all about peace and mercy and purity. In other words, wisdom from above is about godliness. And so the wisdom that we're to ask for in chapter 1 is not so much wisdom to make specific decisions. It's not so much wisdom to understand how the trial might work out in the future, what exactly God is doing in it. No, it's wisdom to live godly lives, whatever circumstances we face. And so James says, if you lack wisdom, if you're wondering what to do, well, well ask God. And he'll give, give it to you 
because he's generous. He will help you. As a loving father, he has given you his spirit for that purpose, to change you, to grow you in godliness. And he does that even as you face trials. That, I think, helps us understand what James says next in verse 6. Just look at verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. It's important to understand what James isn't saying there. He's not saying, you know, if you want God's help, then you must never have any questions. Never struggle to understand what the Bible is teaching. No, you must be certain of all those things before you can come to him. He's not saying that. He's saying if you want to grow in wisdom, if you want to grow in godliness, well, then you can't be double-minded when you ask God for help. The double-minded person is the person who thinks they can have the best of both. They ask God for wisdom, but they're also on the lookout for other options. Yes, they'll check what the Bible says, but they'll also check what Google says. Yes, they'll pray about it, but they'll also see what advice the world has to offer them. And at the time, that might seem like the sensible, secure thing to do like hedging your bets. But James says no. No, the opposite is true. He says that person is like a wave of the sea. They're tossed about from one piece of advice to the next. They're unstable in all they do. And so when you experience trial, it's no good to ask God for the wisdom to be godly whilst at the same time relying on a bit of worldly wisdom to help you through. Think about how that might work. So the Bible's command to respect your boss, no matter how difficult they might be, doesn't fit with the worldly wisdom of gossiping or undermining them in the office. Those two things can't go together. The Bible's command to love and serve your wife doesn't fit with being selfish or snappy no matter how hard your day at work has been. The Bible's command to give generously, it doesn't fit with spending all that you have on yourself, no matter how much you feel you deserve it or have earned it. James says, you need to be clear, you need to be single-minded when you come to God for wisdom. Because if you are, if we genuinely seek to live God's way, even in difficult times, if we trust his way to be the best way, despite what the world says, well then, James says we can be assured that he will give us wisdom. He will help us. He will give us all that we need to live for him. Because he's generous and he's promised to do so. When you face trials, consider it joy, ask for wisdom, and then thirdly, boast in Christ. I don't know about you, but when uh, you first read verse 9, it it seems like James kind of changes subject quite abruptly. Uh, He moves from the subject of trial to the topic of money. Uh, But I'm not sure those things are quite so unrelated. 
Money, yes, is just an ordinary part of everyday life. But James is well aware that it is also something that can cause Christians big problems. Whether we have lots of it or not much of it, money is something that occupies our thoughts and dictates our actions. Money matters. And as a result, it is the the cause of many of the trials that we face. That was true for James's first readers, and it remains true for us. He knows that, and so he says in verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. James says, when it comes to the trial of money, whether you're rich or poor, you need to make sure that you take pride or boast in the right thing. So first, to those who are hard up, those who are struggling financially, those who spend their days longing for wealth, longing for all that comes with that, James says, refocus, boast in your high position. Yes, the world might look down on you. Yes, people might think less of you the moment you tell them what you do for a job. But that is not true with Christ. Christ considers you valuable enough to die for. And through faith in him, Paul says in Romans, that you've become a co-heir with Christ, a co-heir with the king of the universe. In Ephesians, we're told we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so if you're a Christian, then you lack nothing. In Christ, you will one day receive an eternal inheritance, a kingdom that is worth more than anything in this world. And so that means if you're a Christian here this evening, and you are someone who feels inferior to others because of your job or your income well James says you are focusing on the wrong thing you're focusing on the things the world values but if you focus on Christ if you view your life through the lens of the gospel well then you have every reason to boast to boast not in yourself not in your bank balance but in Christ who has given you everything in Christ, who has made you richer than you can possibly imagine. James says, take pride in your high position. But money isn't just a trial for the poor. It's also a trial for the wealthy. For the wealthy who are tempted to rely on and boast in their money and their status, James says in verse 10, take pride in your humiliation. Just as the world around us tends to think of the poor as somehow having failed at life, it also tends to think of the wealthy as those who have succeeded, doesn't it? At this time of year, we get the times rich list. The whole point of that is to say, look, here are the people who have made it. Here are the people you wish you were. But James says, no, that is worldly thinking. That is worldly thinking. Don't assess other people or yourself by the world standards. Instead, focus on what the gospel says about status and success. Because the gospel says that no matter how rich you are materially, we are 
bankrupt spiritually. We are beggars spiritually. And so the richest person in the world can only become a Christian because of God's generosity. They need to come to him for a spiritual handout, for charity, because they have nothing, nothing to offer him. In other words, the rich Christian must boast in what Christ gives them, not what they think they have earned for themselves. They must take pride in their humiliation. Wealth and status were clearly issues for James's first readers, and we're going to see that he comes back to this theme quite a few times in his letter. It was an issue for them, and it remains an issue for us. Living where we do in the affluent West, it is so easy for us to be distracted by money. When things are comfortable, we can tend to forget our need of God. We can become proud and self-sufficient. And when things are difficult, we can be tempted to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to, to begin to blame him for the things that go wrong. And it's that doubting and blaming God that brings us to the last thing that we see in this passage. James says that if you want to remain focused in trials, you need to remember God's goodness. You need to remember God's goodness. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. We all know that voice, don't we, that pops into our head whenever we go through a difficult time. The voice that kind of tries to blame God for our situation. The voice that says, God, you can't seriously expect me to be holy in this. After all, God, it is your fault that I'm in this mess in the first place. You're the one that's put me here. You're the one that's pushed me so far. And so you're the one to blame for my mistakes. You're the one to blame for my sin. If you really wanted me to be godly, you would give me a better job. You would ease my financial pressures. If you really wanted me to be more loving, you would give me a wife who's less critical. If you really wanted me to be more hospitable, you would give me a bigger house. God, if you really want me to be holy, if you really want me to live your way, then you'll change my situation. Until you do that, it's all on you. When faced with trials, it's easy to think that we are good and God is bad. But James says, no. No, don't be deceived. You've got it the wrong way round. Yes, God might choose to test us, but he will never tempt us. And it's important that we get the difference. You see, God's testing, as we've seen, is designed to deepen our faith. It's to, designed to cause us to run away from sin, not run into it. It's meant to help us to persevere, to keep going, not to cause us to give up. Testing is from God, and it's for our good. Temptation, on the other hand, is not from God. Verse 14 says that temptation comes from within, from our own selfish and evil desires. 
And so as much as we'd like to, as much as the worldly wisdom would encourage us to, we can't blame the things around us for the temptations that we feel. It is not the fault of our parents or our friends. It is not the fault of our circumstances or our genes. It is not the fault of our God. No temptation, James says, comes from within. It comes from our own evil desires. And rather than leading to growth or godliness, it leads to sin and death. And so James says, don't be deceived. When you go through trials, have a right view, a right understanding of your own heart. Understand the danger that lurks within. Have a right view of yourself and also have a right view of God. Just look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. If one tendency is to forget how bad we are, the other is to forget how good God is. And so James ends this section by saying, reminding us that far from being a kind of vindictive God who puts temptation in our path and then blames us when we make a mistake, far from that, we have a generous God, a loving God who only gives us good things all of the time. And unlike our circumstances, God doesn't change. He's always good, always holy, always generous, always loving. He has given us every good thing. And most importantly, in verse 18, he has given us new life through his word. I wonder if you noticed the contrast in those last few verses. Verse 15, it's our evil desires that give birth to sin and death. That's our natural life cycle, desire, temptation, sin, death. But then in verse 18, God's word brings about, gives birth to a new life, a new birth. And so it says we respond to the word of truth, to the gospel, that we are born again. The old life cycle of sin and death is broken as we become the first fruits of God's new creation. It's through God's word that we are brought into this new life. And it's through God's word that we continue in that new life. Next week, in the second half of chapter one, uh, James is going to help us to think more about it, what it means to focus on that life-giving word, to listen to it and respond to it. Uh, but for now, I, I hope this opening few verses has helped you to refocus at the start of a new year. Uh, there are so many different voices aren't there so many different things that we listen to so many things that pull us in all sorts of directions and that'll be true this year as it has been every other year but James says don't get distracted don't get caught in two minds when it comes to following Christ instead focus focus in your faith focus on the word of truth Focus on the word that points us to the sovereign God who is at work in every situation, making you more like Christ. Focus on the generous God who gives you wisdom to live for him. 
Focus on the gracious God who has given you riches beyond measure in his son, the Lord Jesus. Focus on the life-giving God who by his word and his spirit has given you new life in Christ. Focus on him this year and you will be able to persevere. You will keep going whatever trials you face. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that for us, that you would help us to focus today, this week, this year. Would you fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus? Would you focus our hearts and our minds on your gospel, on your truth, such that it would drown out all the other voices of the world? Father, please help us to live wholeheartedly for you this year, we pray. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.